0: It's hard to believe that the presidential elections are still over a year away. Um, <clears throat> the amount of money that's been spent on the campaigns thus far um, eclipses the gross national products of many small countries. Um, at one point in time we had 16 Republican candidates, five Democratic candidates, two from our own state, one still hanging on. Um, it's pretty confusing, there's a lot going on. <clears throat> so. You almost need a scorecard to keep up with every candidate and who's doing what and what's changing day by day. Um, so what we wanted to do is get somebody who was an expert on this, and we went to the Department of Politics here at the university to try to find somebody. But they, <coughs> but they were all busy. Um, so we were able to uh, squeak in uh, Larry Sabato, who claims he knows a little something about this. So without further ado, Larry, you're on. <laughs> But, yeah, I, was, I told Tom, that's a record. He only insulted me one time in the, in the introduction. He enjoys uh, doing that kind of thing. And I'm director of the Center for Politics, so that's why he couldn't find me, because he was calling the wrong place. Um, but uh, anyway, that's, I got you back. Uh, well, look, I'm glad to see you all. And uh, before we get to the, I know you want to talk about the presidential election, and we will, we will certainly do that. But um, we had, a, in fact, Tom was at this program, and I didn't see him last night, but we had a big turnout at, um, at Minor Hall uh, for a new documentary. We do a documentary with PBS every year on some political or historical subject, and we've, we've skipped around, done all kinds of things. And uh, Let's see, last year it was actually on the Goldwater-Johnson um, election in 1964 called Bombs Away. Uh, this one, we picked this one, not because it was the next election, but because we thought it fit perfectly the prelude to 2016. Because I fear that pieces of 1968 are going to be showing up in 2016, because emotions are running high. God knows, I hope it's not assassinations and riots, uh, for those of you who remember 1968. How many of you remember the election of 1968? Yeah, practically the whole room, that's right. Yeah. See, that? that's why you're here at 10 a.m. on a Saturday morning. <laughs> Uh, you, you're of that, that age and I am too. Uh, I don't see that many students out there because I would have worried about them had they shown up at um, 10 a.m. on a Saturday morning. But anyway, this this election is, and I should say if there are students out there, I salute you. It means you're a serious student and you're going places. Okay, I think I got myself <laughs> out of that one. You never know what people are tweeting out, so you have to be careful. Uh, Anyway, this documentary, which will be uh, airing on all the PBS stations at different times. You know how PBS is. They run their own schedules because they have to fit in the programs in between the telethons. Uh, But uh, it starts Sunday, and it will go through November, depending on where you live. If you're in the Richmond area or here, it actually airs the first time on Monday at 8 p.m and you know how they are, they'll air it a number of times. So if you can't see it the first time, I'm sure you'll see it again. So this, this, um, this uh, documentary is on 1968 and the 68 presidential election and the things that happened in 1968. And we were trying to come up with the right name for it and, and I happen to love, and I'm sure many of you do, The Temptations, right? And there was a great song, it wasn't released until 1970, but it was built around 1968 called Ball of Confusion. Remember that great song? Uh, well, if any of you had planned to send a Christmas gift to The Temptations, don't bother. Uh, I had to rent this song for this documentary, and they're going to have a very Merry Christmas. You don't, <laughs> don't bother to send them anything. I had no idea what these things actually cost. Uh, but uh, it's, it's, a, it's a high-powered, drama-filled hour. Even if you live through, of course, if you live through 68, you can't forget it, even if you wanted to. I mean it was it was a year of horrors, one right after the other. Uh, and I'm going to show you the trailer for it in just a second. But we had a very special guest in. We had him here for three days and he met with quite a few students and they were fascinated, though some of them had to Google Richard Nixon. Uh, <laughs> seriously. You wouldn't believe the inquiries I get by email and Twitter. And I frequently say, there's a great new tool called Google. You know? So I am not your personal Google. Um, anyway, that's a little sidelight. I thought you might like to hear that. Uh, anyway, we had in Richard Nixon's sole surviving sibling. and He was 17 years younger. He was the youngest of five boys. Two of them died uh, very young. And uh, Richard was the second oldest. His, his eldest brother died. Tuberculosis, and the uh, youngest one, Edward, was born um, right as the Great Depression started, and so hard scrabble existence. And as you said, they only survived because their father ran a grocery store, and that, thats how they got their food. And uh, they were frequently feeding all the other families around there. It was—it was a tough time. Some of you might might remember it, or your parents told you about it, or grandparents, or whatever. Uh, but it was it was incredible because he is the spitting image of Richard Nixon. I've seen the ghost of Richard Nixon, and he he even did this for us. You know, it was that was a, those of you who are younger ask your parents what this is. It's part of the new, the new Nixon of 1968, which turned out to be a lot like the old Nixon, which I couldn't say last night uh, with his brother there. But the guy's a geologist. He's a brilliant guy. He's been to China 40 times, uh, mainly because they, they uh, you know, treat the Nixons like royalty over there in, in China. And he never went until 10 years after his brother left the presidency. But uh, I learned a lot about Richard Nixon, the person that I didn't know before. And I, I began to understand better why he was such a loner and, and some of these problems developed. And his brother knew better than most. It was fascinating to listen to. Uh, so anyway, he, uh, he was here for a while, and, and uh, he's gone back uh, today. He's 85 years old, but very vigorous. Gives me hope. Look, <laughs> looking younger and younger to me. I don't know about the rest of you. Uh, but let me, show, let me show you this trail. I think you're going to love this. In fact, I pledge to you, if you watch this, the hour will not just be educational, but entertaining. And that's tough to do on PBS, you know. They have certain standards. you you, <laughs> you, you got to promise to bore people at least 15 minutes out of every hour. But we didn't do it. Somehow we slipped through the censors there at, at PBS. Uh, Althea, can you help me with this? Really, there's no comparable year in the latter part of the 20th century. People moving out, people moving in. Why? Because of the color of the skin. Run, run. It was mainly filled with disasters. For it seems now more certain than ever that the bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. 1968 is a year of political figures in the United States. It's the year when Lyndon Johnson got his comeuppance because of the war. And I will not accept... The nomination of my party for another term as your president. Once Johnson withdrew, there was really only one possible establishment candidate, and that was Vice President Hubert Humphrey. Most people thought he was simply the stand-in for uh, Lyndon Johnson. Martin Luther King was assassinated in Memphis, and you had riots in 100 American cities, including Washington, D.C. My thanks to all of you, and now it's on to Chicago, and let's win there. You You then, two months later, had the assassination of Robert Kennedy. We had the Democratic Convention with a mob running amok in Chicago. You have to have Gestapo tactics in the streets of Chicago fly down in front of my automobile when I come out here you won't, won't down in front of any more. That's all I'm going to say. He had the Wallace faction. The historic question is whether or not he took more votes from the Democrats or the Republicans. He was a factor. Hubert Humphrey and Richard Nixon are still deadlocked in a monumental struggle. You have to put all of this together in kind of an, a brewing cauldron of events. And it boiled over. It boiled over. It was a year unlike any other. It was truly a ball of confusion. It's amazing that the country didn't come apart. There you go. And I think you're gonna love it. It's gonna it's gonna bring back a lot of memories. You know, uh, one of those demonstrators out there getting clubbed, that was Tom Falters. He was, he was right out there in Chicago. Uh, but, uh, no, I mean, it, it, it is, when you finish watching this, uh, you'll be humming ball of confusion. It will keep you up all night. But you also will be kind of, whew, you know, it's, it's amazing what happened in this year. It was a horrible year. And, and many of us remember conversations with people. Can we survive as a a nation? Are we going to hold together? Because it sure didn't look like it for a while. So as bad as things may be right now or as bad as they'll get in 2016, I don't think it'll be anything really like 1968. Though we can learn some lessons from 1968, and we've tried to be subtle about it in the – in the uh, production, we, we're not heavy-handed about the lessons. That's up to you, the viewer, to draw. But there are some lessons for you to draw from this film and apply uh, to 2016, and I hope you will. We, we actually we depress you for 56 minutes, and the final minute, uh, we uplift you because we end with Apollo 8. You know, the first time man circled the moon and on Christmas Eve and remember the astronauts reading Genesis. I mean, it was very moving and you thought, well, maybe it's over. And, you know, 69 was not as bad as 68, it wasn't great, but it wasn't as bad as 1968. So it's always a a good thing to remember that things do get better. Okay, now here we go with 2016 since we just are going to jump from 1968 and uh... now this is for i know this group and it's primarily republican always is i don't know i think the democrats party late that's that's the reason uh... this is primarily republican so i went ahead and you know did what you wanted me to do (laughs) don't worry i'll get trump later There are some things we don't need to talk about. you know. Uh, unless you have a Republican a president, you're, you're, not, you're going to continue to have gridlock unless the Republicans do something really stupid with their presidential nomination. What are the chances of that, 50-50? <laughs> uh, you know, that's the only way the Democrats can take over the House is if the Republicans nominate a fool. By the way, those of you Republicans, I'm getting more and more of the stuff I got in 2012. Well, it doesn't matter who the Republicans nominate. Why, uh, my dog could beat Hillary Clinton. Yeah, I got all that in 2012. My dog could beat Barack Obama, except he won by four percentage points, and five million votes. So it didn't work out the way you thought it was going to, and it's not going to be that way in 2016 either. You can't just nominate anybody and win. And, yeah, you've got a record number of candidates. It's amazing how many bad candidates you've got in there. I mean, you've you got, you know, two or three to choose from, to tell you the honest truth, and we'll talk about that. So, you know, not worth talking about the, the House. The Senate's going to be interesting. And here's where the winner of the presidential contest will probably get the Senate if a republican wins even by this much they keep the senate because of the the seats that are up but if a democrat wins and we're talking about hillary it's over i don't want to get too far ahead but you know the uh, it doesn't matter she loses iowa new hampshire at this point biden was the only person who potentially could have been a threat i don't even think he could have been a threat. So she's a nominee. It'll just take a while to to work through it, which is a great advantage for Democrats. They can be organizing and raising money and doing all kinds of things for the general election while the Republicans are beating the stuffing out of one another with the the help of debate moderators. No question about that. Um, Can you believe the Republican National Committee set up those debates? I mean, you know, moderators are going to do what moderators do but uh you know a republican national committee or a national party committee ought to have more sense uh so naturally the republican national chairman decides to attack uh, the uh the uh, uh network and the and the moderators as a way of deflecting blame but i don't know if it's going to work or not anyway senate races if a democrat wins by you know 2 or 3 points nationally they'll win the senate again because it's 54-46 Uh, right now, 54 Republicans, 46 Democrats, but look what's up in 2016. You only have 10 Democratic states, and almost all of them are solid, absolute winners for the Democrats. You've got 24 Republican states up in red, and many of them are vulnerable, and here's the map of the vulnerability. The uh, blue states uh, are certain to be democratic, Democrats really only have a problem in Nevada, Colorado, maybe but I doubt it they haven 't been able to recruit a good candidate they 've got uh, Harry Reid, uh, the former Senate Majority Leader, retiring in Nevada, and that 'll be close It'll, The Senate seat will go to the winner of Nevada, which is one of the seven swing states that we 'll get to in a moment. Uh, The Democrats have already essentially picked up two. I'm sorry if you're from Wisconsin and you're a Republican because your Senator Ron Johnson ain't going to be in the Senate as of uh, 2017. And in Illinois, same is true for Senator Mark Kirk. Forget about it. Those two Republicans are are toast. Uh, And so Democrats are going to win those two seats, so they're that much closer uh, to a majority. Now, what are the toss-ups? There are only three of them, Nevada, Florida, where Marco Rubio well, has really already abandoned his Senate seat, but will be formally leaving it uh, in uh, 2017, and uh, New Hampshire. By the way, Bush was absolutely right about that, but totally muffed the delivery. I have, I have rarely in my life seen a worse debate performance than Jeb Bush turned in. I didn't realize until this campaign started how rusty he was and how bad he was at debates, and it's killing him. It's just killing him. Uh, He was the original front-runner. I just, I don't see how he puts it together unless they buy it, and then if the establishment buys it for Bush, how do they ever get the majority of the base that wants an outsider? How do you ever get them to support the ultimate insider establishment candidate, another Bush, the third member of the same nuclear family? You know, it doesn't work. The The person has, the man has to meet the moment. The person has to meet the moment to, to win the presidency. You know, Nixon didn't meet it in 60, but he met it in 68. Uh, same thing will happen in 2016, but if you don't meet the moment, you can't win. And the moment in the Republican Party is any establishment, outsiders. And not that one of them, not that a pure outsider didn't have to win the nomination, but I don't see how the ultimate insider manages to win and unite the Republican Party. You've got to do both to have a chance of winning the general election, but we'll get to that in a second. So, you know, our current count Republicans are right at 50. Uh, they've got plenty to worry about, though. If a, a Democrat normally wins Pennsylvania by four, five, six percentage points, that could be enough to oust uh, one term Republican Senator Pat Toomey. Ohio. Uh, who I, the guy I really respect and I like a lot, Rob Portman, Senator Rob Portman, one-term Republican. But again, Ohio, uh, one of the two ultimate, sw- three ultimate swing states. I think Ohio, Virginia, and Florida are now the ultimate swing states. Uh, Ohio um, uh, usually goes, almost always goes with the winner. Though Democrats have twice won Ohio, uh, twice won the presidency without winning Ohio: uh, Kennedy in '60 and FDR in 1944. But no Republican. Uh, since McKinley, since and including McKinley, has ever won the presidency without winning Ohio. They absolutely, positively have to win Ohio. If, if you see on election night the Republicans losing Ohio, you can go to bed early, you know, because it's over. There's, there ain't no way. And the last time a Republican went over 300 electoral votes, you need 270. 300 is not very many, was Bush, the senior, in 1988, I mean, the, the Republicans have been doing really, really poorly, increasingly, because of the demographic changes in the country, and they haven't focused on The base doesn't get it. The leaders get it. The base doesn't get it. And until they get it, they're not going to pick the best of the choices available to them and have a good chance of winning in November. And we'll talk about that more as well. Anyway. You know, any of those you want to talk about, uh, New Hampshire's really close, uh, the incumbent Republican and is running against the incumbent Democratic governor, uh, really close. Go the way of the presidency, probably. Same with Florida. Whoever wins Florida presidentially will probably pick up the Senate seat. 81% of the time now, the Senate seats are going in the direction of the presidential election uh, that, because we're polarized. People now vote Democratic from White House to Courthouse or Republican from White House to Courthouse. They're, they're hardly any real independents anymore. Loads of people claim to be independent. They're liars because you, you look at their voting records. They voted for 95% of all the Republicans. They claim they're an independent. No, they're not. They're a Republican. You know, But you call yourselves a hot and tot if you want to. You know, I don't care what you do, but you're, it's obvious from your voting record what you are. Now, uh, why should Democrats be optimistic about the election? I mentioned the demographics. Uh, the example I like to use, which kind of puts it into focus, is that uh, you go back to the 80s, Republicans won three elections by a wide margin, 80, 84, 88, Reagan and George H.W. Bush. And the electorate at that time was 85% white. And Republicans were winning 60, 62% of the white vote. That was more than enough for a substantial win. 15% of the electorate was minorities, almost all at that time African American. Uh, Democrats got 80% of the 15%. But it's not enough to overcome 62% of a much larger white population. 2016, what's the electorate? Double the percentage of minorities from 15 to 30, including Asian Americans, Hispanic Americans, uh, as well as African Americans. Democrats are still getting 80 to 82% of that vote. And it, it counts double now. And Republicans haven't improved their percentage among whites. Romney got 59. It was close enough to what Bush and Reagan did, but you've you got to get 65 to 70, depending on the variable turnouts, uh, to win a general election. Why can't Republicans do that? Because white young people are increasingly Democratic because of the Republican positions on social issues. They totally disagree. And if Republicans ever figure it out and stop talking about social issues, they will be better off. And, I'm yes, immigration is one of them. Uh, gay marriage, abortion, you know, and some of you probably have strong views about it. But, you know, politics is about winning. And, you know, it's about principle, and you can principle yourself to death. Congratulations, you've come very close. You know, <laughs> keep it up. Keep it up. Uh, so that's life in the, in the demographic sphere. Uh, young people, single women uh, are voting Democratic mainly because of economic issues, but also social issues. Uh, the, you know, the votes aren't there. That's, that's the problem for the Republicans. The votes aren't there, at least if it's a normal turnout. If for some reason Democrats are depressed, then Republicans can win. Gee, when does that happen? Off-year elections when the turnouts are much lower. Minorities don't vote uh, in, to the same degree. Young people don't vote. Who votes? Older people who are the most Republican. They're the ones who show up. And white voters, they're the ones who show up in midterm elections. That's why Republicans do so well in midterm elections and do so poorly in presidential elections. It's the difference of turnout. Uh, and, of course, Democrats are working to get to make sure that their turnout among their group of variable voters that don't show up in midterms is as strong or stronger than it was in 2008 2012 come 2016. So the economy, you know, it's, it's not great, it's not bad, it's not a recession, you know, it's perking along at a low level. It's it's right on the borderline between enough to elect an incumbent party and enough uh, to cause the out party to get in. And, and I have, I saw a, a, a summary of economic predictions the other day and, Economists were unanimous, literally unanimous, that we would be continuing a slow growth pattern, but enough so that the economy moves forward, which was the first sign to me there may be a recession. Uh, they, were, they were unanimous, and that they're always wrong. They're so unlike political analysts. We're, we're right on the money. But those, those economists, my God, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. Uh, same is true here in departments. I've, I've noticed that. Don't tell the economics department I said so. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Ken Elsing is an exception. All right. The Clinton machine. Why would I mention that? Because they've been building it since the early 70s, and, and um, just the list of women is very long. Just wondering if you got that. It'll sink in. It'll sink in. If Bush is the nominee, and I think, you know, it's a questionable nomination. Uh, there are a lot of reasons to think, well, he'd be strong because his father and brother won. And Bush world is also gigantic. And, yeah, look at all the money he's raised. Done him a whole lot of good, hasn't it? Uh, but, boy, you think, do you think there's Clinton fatigue? You know, there is. There's some Clinton fatigue because we're into this dynasty thing and people don't like dynasties. But uh, Bush fatigue? <laughs> you run against his brother. It's so easy. You know, you just run against his brother. Both Bushes had recessions, and the second Bush, that was just eight years ago. I mean, people remember what happened with, you know, Iraq and Katrina and... The doubling of the national debt for a Republican and the unpaid drug benefit and then the giant recession, the worst recession since the Great Depression. And I don't care whether you think Bush had anything to do with it or not. It doesn't matter. The American people hold presidents responsible. They give him credit or blame, too much credit, too much blame for what happens in the economy. So it's so easy to run against Jeb Bush, particularly because he, his political skills aren't very good, as it turns out. So good luck with that one. And then there's a there's a Trump backlash. Uh, there's something called videotape. See at last you can have a videotape replay for months or years or decades or centuries and and uh, you know he is burning a lot of bridges for the Republican Party particularly with Hispanics. Oh my God. You know, and their, their number one goal, the Republican National Committee's number one goal after the last election was to rebuild the bridges to the Hispanic community and to increase the proportion. Because Romney got 27%. You cannot win as a Republican unless you get at least 40% of the vote. You can't win. So uh, right now, <laughs> the Hispanic percentage is almost right where it was with Romney in terms of supporting the republic a generic republican nominee for president now maybe a bush could do better because he has strong connections his wife is mexican-american and on and on and uh, obviously marco rubio could some people contend ted cruz could i'm not sure we'll talk about that but trump is all the democrats have to do is run all these trump things together and say here's your modern republican party is this what you want and that all of his people will be in office, and they'll have to have a proportion of the cabinet, and he'll have influence on the next president because he'll never shut up. You know that. Now that he's done so well, we will have to live with Donald Trump till the day he dies. <laughs> That's the way our system works. You know, you get established, and then you're there forever. Okay, it works with analysts, too. Uh, why Republicans should be optimistic. It is difficult to get a third term. Uh, Look back to Nixon in 1960, came very close. Eisenhower was over 60% popularity. Eisenhower couldn't drag Nixon across the finish line. 1968, all a Democrat needed was 43% because Wallace was taking so many Republican votes. And uh, even with 3% unemployment, three, in 1968, because of Vietnam, uh, Humphrey fell just short, 42.5%. Uh, 1976 because of Watergate, Ford couldn't get the third term for Republicans. Uh, George H.W. Bush is the one exception in '88 because Dukakis was a horrible nominee, which is a warning to a party not to nominate no. a really bad candidate in a year they could otherwise win. And 2000, you know, Gore wins the popular vote, but he can't quite get the electoral vote, so he couldn't get the third term. And, Needless to say, McCain couldn't in, uh, in 2008. No Republican was going to win after the Bush performance. Zero chance. Any Democrat was president. So that's why Hillary tried so hard until the very end, because she was automatically president if she was the Democratic nominee for president in 2008. And, you know, Democratic disarray, not really anymore. I mean, Bernie will be Bernie, and or should I say Larry David will be Larry David, but uh, he doesn't matter. I mean, it's laughable. I'm sorry. You know, seventy-four years old, a socialist. I mean, uh, it's it's uh, my students are all for Bernie Sanders. You know, so, but but that's okay. No, no, it's it's all right. You know, and we were all for McGovern in nineteen seventy-two. We were just certain he was going to win, and sure enough, he got forty-nine percent of the youth vote. Um, <laughs> and that was the half that attended college. Seriously, the non-college half voted for Nixon, the, uh, the college half voted for McGovern. So that's, see you always believe that everybody around you is representative of the country. I always tell this story because I like to bring up my, my dear uh, late mother. She was, we were sitting there, this is a 64 presidential election, sitting on the couch watching the returns. Of course it was over almost instantly and there was a senator being elected at the same time. And my parents hated the senator. And they were convinced he was going to lose. Well, he won by as large a percentage as Johnson did. And my mother turned to my father and said, how can this be? We always vote against him, and everyone we know votes against him. And that's the way we all are. We think the people we hang out with, they must be, they're representative. I know loads of people, you know, and I've listened, and everybody is for X. No, everybody's not for X. All of your friends and relatives are for X. But you don't represent the country. And that's true for both sides. All people totally misinterpret their their private signals. Uh, Obama, Clinton, there's certainly Obama fatigue. Among Republicans, it's pretty intense. We live in a very polarized era, Uh, no question about that. And and there are some Republican candidates that might do it. But here's what I focus people on. I always show this because it's so important. Fundamentals run presidential elections, whether it's war and peace, the economy, scandal, those are the fundamentals. But the real fundamentals the electoral college. Here's the electoral college. It's every state expanded or contracted to reflect its real weight in the electoral college. And I always have somebody from North Dakota, you know, come up to me and complain about how their big state becomes this little dot on the map. And my answer is, get out there and procreate. That's your problem. I mean, you need more people. I can't help you. I'm not going to North Dakota. North Carolina North Dakota do your job for you. Um, you glance at that map, look at the blue. It's, it's obvious at a glance. And see, Democrats today pretty much have 240 to 247 electoral votes locked up you know, because of the polarization. That, unless they nominate somebody who's really, Bernie would lose. Uh, I, by the way, I gave Bernie his nickname. It's used nationally now. You know what his nickname is? George McGovern. Uh, <laughs> But it's different. It's different. McGovern carried Massachusetts in D.C., and Bernie would carry Vermont in D.C. So that's the that's a major difference between the two of them. Um, but uh, you know, you, you start out with two 240 plus. Uh, that helps a lot, and it's it's well worth remembering. The Democrats have won the popular vote in every election since it, including 1992, with the exception only of Bush's reelection in 2004, which was this close. Okay, I mean, you gotta, you got to realize what's going on. You have to focus on facts. And when you ignore the facts, the same thing happens again and again and again and again. Uh, and people can't seem to do that. But there's the Republican base. So let's look at what we're going to be facing in 2016, whatever party we belong to. Uh, there's, the, there's the map. I've got Democrats in varying degrees of certainty at 247. The Republicans are at 206. That's their base vote. By the way, that's exactly what Mitt Romney got. He got the Republican base and that was it. If there's one state that's really not in the base, it's North Carolina, it can go either way, but it leans more Republican than Democratic for a while. That pop how many of you are from North Carolina? You know the population's changing there, too. The demographics of North Carolina are changing. And over time, it will become more democratic if the current alignments remain, which is why Republicans are trying to break in to the Hispanic vote and the Asian vote and so on. Uh, But North Carolina I gave to the Republicans just to try and be kind, get them over 200. Um, (laughs) Over time, and I mean, you know, a dozen years, Georgia is going to be much more competitive than it is right now, and Arizona certainly will be because of the skyrocketing Hispanic population there. Just the facts, you know; those are the facts. You, you, so, in other words, Republicans couldn't bleed electoral votes. Now, Democrats can too with a bad candidate, a bad campaign, a bad economy. There are loads of reasons why they can bleed votes too. But in a competitive year, it's it's a lot tougher. I always uh, – Pennsylvania, you know, I always think it has the potential to vote Republican, and it never does. Uh, we'll see. I'm not going to rule it out. Same with Wisconsin. It has the potential, the underlying vote, to vote Republican, but it, but it never does, or it hasn't in a long, long time. It really comes down, unless it's a landslide, it comes down to 85 electoral votes, all right? And there, there are only seven states in the mix We could call 40 states right now, us sitting here right now, we could call 40 states. It's depressing. 1960, 20 states were this close, Kennedy-Nixon. 1976, 20 states this close between Carter and Ford, and by the way, different states than in 1960. So you had a much more competitive map. You had national elections for president. We have a seven-state election for president in most years occasionally you can expand it to pennsylvania or wisconsin or arizona but mainly it's these seven in order of importance the mega state florida twenty nine and they'll be gaining more electoral votes in twenty twenty uh, ohio at nineteen uh... virginia at thirteen and virginia now is the closest to the national average it beats even ohio virginia is the best national barometer presidential elections who would have believed it for those of us who grew up in Virginia, But demographic change again has converted Virginia. And then you have smaller states, but they still matter. Colorado at nine, Nevada and Iowa at six, and even New Hampshire at four. If Gore had carried New Hampshire, would have been president. So even New Hampshire could make a difference in a highly polarized competitive era that potentially we live in if the nominees are good, good nominees. There's the election. So if you're smart, In both parties, and you don't have a choice now, I don't think much in the Democratic Party, it's pretty obvious, but in the Republican Party, if you want to, if you're interested in picking a winner, and you don't have to, there's nothing in the Constitution or the laws, Republicans, that says you have to pick somebody who can win. You pick anybody you want. (laughs) Feel free. It's your, that's your decision. Principle. Go ahead. Principle, principle, principle. I get that all the time. Fine. Fine. But if you decide that you might like to win. If that hits you late one night, you need to think about these seven states. Go through the candidates and figure out which candidates can win these states. Let me tell you what a a very senior Republican in high office, you'd recognize his name instantly, told me two weeks ago. Now, he's very conservative. And my guess is he would prefer one of the more conservative candidates, not Trump. He doesn't consider Trump conservatives consider Trump anything except Trump. That's that is Trump's platform. Trump. I think I think most people recognize that. But I said that. Tell me the truth. Who who I will never quote you by name. But I'd like to know who you think uh, can win. What's the best ticket and one that you would settle for? He says, Oh, I can tell you that. Either Kasich Rubio Rubio Kasich Florida Ohio, Ohio Florida, uh, instantly. And a lot of Republicans say that privately. Okay, Kasich they think is too moderate, Rubio, these too inexperienced, or as Bush put it, the Republican, Obama, boy, what an insult. In the Republican Party, the worst thing you can do is call somebody like Obama. Uh, but winning ticket, there you go. There you go. Now, you know, will they ever get to it? Uh, don't place any bets. That's all I can tell you. Now, this is over, you know, so we don't even need to talk about the coronation, Now this is my Halloween. I told you I'd even the score. Uh, We've had a Trumpkin patch uh, going on, and we we should have Tom. We should have patented or copyrighted or whatever the heck you can do with the term Trumpkin. We came up with it in September, and darn if everybody hasn't stolen it. And people have their Trumpkins all over the all over the country because he kind of looks like a Trumpkin. I mean it's. You know, it's perfect. So that's all right. These are students who have carved these things. We had as many as 10 at one point, and then the squirrels on the lawn ate them. Now, I thought about writing Trump to tell him that, but I don't want him to tweet about me. Uh, Because it it really does get you hundreds of the foulest tweet you've ever seen i mean it's just scraping the bottom of the barrel it's obscene the thing and it worries me that people that there's so many people out there at the bottom of the barrel and that's true for many candidates it's not just trump but boy has he attracted them uh now look here's here's the way we size it up we call trump and carson the yin and yang outsiders uh, I, I tend to think of, of them as the non-nominatable front runners. Uh, can the Republicans actually nominate one of them? Of course. I mean, it's possible they could. You have such a split field that if these candidates don't drop out, and there's so many of them who should have dropped out months ago, they have zero chance to win. But if the field keeps getting this fractured and they all stay in, then it's not inconceivable that one of these two could win. But and, and Carson's very different. Yin and Yang, Donald Trump, who is, I'm sorry, a carnival barker. You all know this. That's what he is. Ben Carson, you know, sweet guy, quiet. <laughs> he has some very exotic views, which will make him unelectable. They have not been fully examined. They will be. Uh, he, he's, a, he's a wonderful guy. He really is. He's a sweet guy. Between the two of them, if you had to take a transcontinental flight, who'd you fly next to? I mean, there's, there's nobody... <laughs> Who wouldn't pick Carson? Uh, I don't think. You know, unless you, you 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 needed to stay awake for some reason, then you'd pick Trump. Of course, he'd eat your your tray of food as well as his own. But um, so yeah, those are those are two. They they have a majority of the vote, the Republican base, right? They've had it consistently now for for about a hundred days. And some of the other outsiders you added in, it's about 60% of the Republican vote is outsider and anti-establishment. Now, if you're looking at plausible semi-traditional nominees, I put Rubio at the top because he's the only one, I didn't know he had so many feet. He's got a foot in every camp. uh, And he can be a compromise candidate. Are there downsides? Of course there are downsides. You know, he, he, people say, oh, he has, doesn't have the experience. Well, number one, Democrats couldn't use that as an issue for obvious reasons. <laughs> and, and number two, uh, and, and this is sad, really, we actually put a premium today on lack of experience because it means you can't be attacked for this vote and that vote because you never took them. You weren't there. You don't have a long record. There's very little to attack. We used to care about getting trained people in the White House. And now, you know, we want people who don't, who take two years to find the bathrooms. You know, that's what we want. Uh, Jeb Bush, uh, if he actually got in, he would be very much like either his father or his brother. I think he'd be probably more like his father. That's my guess. Uh, But, you know, you got to get there and you got to have the skills to get there. Good luck. Now, Ted Cruz, I always tell people I had him here in my classes, I had a, a big 101 class, and I was worried because, you know, it's 400 college students, and I know their positions on those social issues, and Ted Cruz has exactly the opposite position. So I, I worry, I don't want my guests embarrassed. Uh, they gave him a standing ovation at the end of it. He was so good. You could tell he's the, he was the Princeton debate champ. I mean, he's really, really good. Now, having said that, looking back at that electoral map, I can't see a single – Purple swing state he can carry, not one. And certainly no blue state. I just can't see him uh, because of his positions. And he would be f- fully defined by the time of the election. We That's the one... Advantage, maybe you could say, of our incredibly long campaigns. People don't like politics. They don't pay that much attention to it, except for you all. And they learn in increments, a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit the other. But when the, when the long campaign's finished, the mosaic is finished. They put the little pieces together and they have more or less a picture of what the candidates and the parties are all about. Uh, so I think Ted's challenge would be getting elected in the, in the general. Is he, is he smart? Is he able? You saw it at the debate. He had even better lines than Rubio, and he was judged by some of the questionable online surveys and the other things, you know, Frank Luntz and his focus groups. By the way, focus groups, you got maybe 24 people. Do you know what the margin of error is on a focus group? (laughs) It's somewhere close to 20%. They're not representative of anything except the person who picked them. Okay, 24 people. I have questions about polls of a thousand. 24 people, and we actually listen to this stuff. Incredible. I discount. I don't even watch it. And when I hear about it, I discount it immediately. Uh, Kasich. We have talked about Carly Fiorina. Uh, I I had thought she might actually vault into the uh, the uh, con- competitors, and she might for VP, but she totally faded after winning. The earlier debate, she just fell off the radar screen. She's raised almost no money. She did OK. She didn't dominate the last debate. She did OK uh, on what was it, Wednesday or whenever it was this past week. I, I just I don't see how it happens. But she could carry the battle. Does she have minuses? You have the HP thing. and all. Candidates always have minuses. You've got pluses, you have minuses for every, every human being. Except for us, we are perfect. And that's, we're the exceptions. You got to remember, these candidates are much more flawed than any of us could possibly be. Uh, okay, so it, look, I call them the daydream believers. Thank you, monkeys. And no one is going to be the homecoming king. Okay? And you all remember that wonderful monkey song. And if you don't, you should go to YouTube and play it from the 1960s. But yeah, you know, why are they running? I just, it's ego, it's, you know, they love the exposure, they're trying out for a TV show. Uh, I I can't tell you what it is, but uh, maybe selling books, and that's a good thing, by the way. Um, Yeah, you got the books back there, you're waving, you got them all back there. And I mean, really, uh, it's not a matter of just buying one of each, I'm talking about a carton for your... uh, Makes a wonderful holiday gift. I'm here, I'll sign them, you know. So uh, one-stop shopping. You know, you've got to quit shopping at the alumni shop. How much, how much blue and orange can you wear, really? You know, you, you need a good book. You need a good book. So you go, go, and I'll be watching. I'll be watching to see who goes. And I'm Italian. Don't push me. I'm Italian, okay? i got a lot of dead fish and leftover newspaper. Okay. Well, that's, that's all I'm going to talk about today, except you should all be signed up for our crystal ball newsletter. It comes out every Thursday morning, actually very late Wednesday night, but it'll be there for you on Thursday morning, updating you on the presidential races, the Senate races, House races, governor's races in 2016. And best of all, it's free. It's a product of your university, the University of Virginia. So as we take your questions, let me go ahead and push one of those books. Uh, you know, subliminal. You know, it's like eat popcorn except it's not just one frame. It will be up there forever uh, as, you, as you go out. So uh, let me go uh, take some questions. I saw that hand first. Ask a long question, I have to take a long drink. Hindsight is twenty-twenty. Uh, who do you think would have done a better job than Romney against uh, in 2012? Just curious. Well, Kanye West is out there. He's interesting. Um, <laughs> You know, fundamentally, I don't, actually, I'm sorry, a lot of you disagree with me because, boy, if you want to hear criticism of Mitt Romney, just go to a Republican meeting, okay, and they go on, oh, he did this, he did that, and that 47% comment, yeah, it was dumb, and this and that, oh, it was horrible. No, actually, he was the most respectable candidate in the bunch. The others would have done worse. He got your maximum, which right now is 46, 47%. Um, And and by the way, if the Republicans goof and nominate a really bad candidate, I don't think that candidate can fall much below 45 because we're so polarized. This isn't like 64 when Goldwater got 38%. There were millions and millions of Americans who would switch back and forth between the parties, at least for president. Or 72 when when McGovern got 38%. Both parties nominated a loser uh, that got 38%. And by the way, at the time... You could not find a Republican, uh, that is, who was conservative, who didn't believe Goldwater was going to win. Millions and millions of conservatives who've been alienated are going to come out and flood the polls. 38%. And liberals said the very same thing. Uh, liberals, uh, of course, equals the press. And the press, in 1972, if you read The, uh, the Boys on the Bus, wonderful book, Tim Krause's book, and there's a, there's a, a page in there that I always show people. He was on the bus with the top reporters, and they were with McGovern the last couple of weeks. And they all, of course, it's groupthink, but they all talked to one another and then notified their editors. They had to have an alternate page ready for the old Dead Tree Press, uh, and the page would read McGovern wins in massive upset because McGovern's crowds were amazing, and they were they thought McGovern was on the cusp of an upset. You see how easily you can be misled if you're in a bubble. They were in the bubble of the campaign, and activists tend to be in the bubble. Again, everybody they know says the very same thing. Everybody thinks X, except everybody doesn't. So I can't, you know, I don't think that it would have made all that much difference in 2012 either. The other candidates running certainly couldn't have done even as well as, as Romney. You know, you go through, you, know, you can you can mention superstars, but, It's the fundamentals of an election campaign. It's those North Stars I talked about, economy, war, and peace, et cetera. And it was good enough for uh, Obama to win as an incumbent and with his coalition. They weren't as excited about him as they were in 2008, but they were excited enough. You know, it's the only presidential election in American history where African-American turnout exceeded white turnout in percentage terms. That's tough to beat. That's tough to beat. It was going to be there no matter who the Republicans nominated Oh, you got a, go ahead. Now you got a mic. Hey, you got a mic. There you go. <laughs> okay, I am wondering how reliable polls are anymore. It used to be, you know, they'd call you up and ask who you're going to vote for. Well, there are a lot of us that don't have landlines anymore. So I don't think that works as, uh, I don't think it's reliable as it used to be. And how much are people influenced by polls? So I'd like your opinion on those. Thank sure. You. No, good question. Uh, polls are less reliable today for two reasons. One, cell phones. I mentioned that class of 400, four students out of 400 had a landline. Four. Everybody else has a cell phone. You say, well, what's, why don't they just call the cell phones? Because uh, there are all kinds of rules about uh, the cell phone use and, and, uh, and uh, groups like polling organizations calling those cell phones. And people today also will not answer their phones unless they recognize the number. We all do that. We all do that. I mean, a lot of people think I don't have a phone because I never answer it. Never. And if you, if you lived my life, you'd understand why. Every nut in America has been in touch with me at least once. And, you know, in a population of 315 million or whatever the heck it is, there are a lot of nuts. Uh, believe me. On all sides. Oh, my God. Uh, but uh, the refusal rate today is massive. It, depending on the media market, it can range up to ninety percent. That is ninety percent of the people receiving a call don't answer. They won't. They won't participate. And if they, some that do answer, hang up because they don't want to participate. Pollsters are now trying uh, to give gifts. You know, they'll, they'll give money. They'll they'll pay twenty bucks if you'll agree to answer these questions on the phone and it works a little bit it makes it a little bit better and some of the pollsters who are willing to spend tons of money like pew research i really pay attention to their polls pew research center look up Pew. they have superb polls because they spend a fortune to get it just right do you seriously think for profit polling organizations go the extra mile to get it just right they're trying to make a profit they're going to cut it as soon as they possibly can and i have questions about whether some of them complete half as many calls as they claim they have. They just take a half sample and double it. How would anyone know? How would anyone know? So, and that's not true of major newspapers and networks. They do what they say they do, but their samples are kind of small. Also, you see all these conclusions they draw about, say, the Republican candidates? Well, they got a sample of 1,000. Identified Republicans and leaners, maybe 393, as one recent poll was. 393. The margin of error there is about 6%. 6% 6% plus or minus. So you get a 52-48. It could be you know, that the guy with 48 is winning by a mile. Or it could be that the 52 is winning in a landslide. Who would know? Nobody knows. So you compare the polls. You do the polling averages. But a lot of times, you're, you're averaging junk. You know, It's garbage in, garbage out. So you're averaging junk. The future of polling is online. That's the good news. Online surveying and yes, you'll have to pay people to participate, and you'll have to do panels, you'll have to carefully weight them demographically. That's the good news. The bad news is nobody has yet figured out exactly how to do it to make it representative. There are some major tests ongoing now in this presidential campaign to try to get it right. It's the only way to keep costs down and potentially produce a quality product. And incidentally for Um, the Kennedy half century. I don't know if I, did I mention that book that's available for sale back there? We've got a, we had a big national uh, sample uh, asking people about all the presidents they remember and what they thought of them and so on. Well, we did a 2,000 plus sample. We needed a big sample because we wanted to do a lot of demographic comparisons. We did it all online. And our test Uh, uh, subjects were the polls that had been done about presidents prior with the same question wording and luckily it came out you know within two or three percentage points of the same question results so we felt pretty confident that this was uh, finally done but two thousand is expensive believe me it's very expensive and most uh, survey organizations and even media organizations are just not going to pay that money so the larger sample uh, cell phone use has got to be at least I think half or more of the sample and they gotta pay and for that, right now that's your best hope and Pew is, is the one I think of Gallup used to be Gallup's dropped out as you know Gallup isn't even doing candidate surveys anymore because they blew it in 2012 in mid-October they declared Romney the winner of the election they said nobody had ever been this far ahead in their polls and lost 1948 all over again, they've dropped out of uh, presidential polling. Uh, they do they do issue polling, but they won't do the candidates because that's the dangerous part. They're not doing it. So Pew is your best bet. But you're absolutely right to ask those questions about about polling and to be skeptical. Now, the influence people, I think people have more or less gotten the message that polls can be way off because they've seen so many examples of it. So I think they're much more skeptical than they used to be. The people who really react are the candidates, the candidates' spouses, uh, the candidates' (laughs) campaign managers and probably activists because they're easily depressed. I found that. (laughs) On both sides, the slightest bit of negative information will send them into a tailspin and calling their doctor for more Xanax. (laughs) That's been my experience. Way back here, yes. You have to raise your hand and get the attention of one of these uh, wonderful assistants here with the mics. Um, What do you think would happen with the African-American vote if Carson were on the ticket? I would be shocked if he crossed the 10% barrier. I don't think he would. Obama got, uh, in 2008, 96% of the African-American vote. In in 2012, he got 94%. Almost no Republican, even African-American Republicans, get a large percentage of the African-American vote. This has now become much more about party than about race. It's, again, a polarized era. Uh, You have the scale of strong Democrats to strong Republicans. Well, about 17% of the population, strong Democrats. About 15% of the population, strong Republicans. Guess what? That 17% of strong Democrats, overwhelmingly minority, African-American and Hispanic primarily. Strong Democrats literally just don't stray. They just don't stray, they vote for their party. Now you know occasionally when you have an uncompetitive race like Senator uh, Tim Scott, African American Republican Senator from South Carolina had, uh, he got a fairly large percentage of the African American vote, but there was no race. There was no contest in that particular election, so that's an exception. Uh, But boy, I tell you, we're we're polarized. And uh, as I say, I guess the good news is it's more about party than about racial and ethnic distinctions. So I guess, you know, thank God for small favors, huh? Where's our next one? Right here, right here. Up here. Okay, where are we? There we go. Hi. Hi. Um, looking at international politics, I'm yes. the debate format works a little differently. Mm-hmm. And it's just kind of funny to see, you know, 16 podiums on the stage. I'm trying to picture it right now in front of me, and I can't. And so how would you change the debate structure? I know you had a post on it on Twitter. You are so nice to add. Did I pay you? No. Uh, <laughs> well, I should have. I tell you what. Here's what I'm going to do for you. You know those books I'm selling? Well, if you buy some, I'll inscribe them for free. <laughs> and, and maybe Tom Falders will pay for a couple for you. He's, he's right back there, and he's got a big, fat wallet. I saw it. <laughs> OK, anyway, it's an excellent question. I, I published a piece in Political Magazine in July, a month before the debate started, begging. And I always beg, because I know they don't pay any attention. I'm an academic. I've, I've made thousands of proposals, and I'm used to being ignored. As I always say, my my proposals are scheduled for enactment on the 12th of never. Circle your calendar. Uh, but I proposed in this piece, this long piece, look it up, You know, Google it, um, I proposed that instead of having, at the time, 17 podiums, and they thought they were going to include everybody at first before they came up with that idea of the undercard, which I thought was very unfair, by the way, because they were relying on polls, ma'am. They were relying on, on polling, highly inaccurate, to separate out the four, five, six they wanted to drop into the undercard, when in fact the margin of error meant they had to drop 10 into the undercard to be fair. Of course, they did what they wanted to do. Networks are even more arbitrary than people in politics, so they do whatever they want to do and usually get away with it until last week. Uh, but I proposed, instead of having 17 podia on the, on the uh, stage and guaranteed chaos, guaranteed confrontation, because you have to, to keep people's interest, you're going to have to stimulate arguments, and you can't ask 17 people for an answer to the same question. So you're going to end up with this candidate arguing with this candidate, and this candidate arguing with this candidate, and then the times get screwed up. There hasn't been one debate yet that's been fair. There have been candidates who've gotten up to five minutes more, which is a lot in these debates, than other candidates. And and it's wrong. They're They're guaranteed in the rules. I can show you the rules. They're guaranteed equal time, except they don't get it. And then the networks apologize after it's over. A lot of good that does, the candidates. So I proposed taking the the three hour block of prime time, which is what it was then. It's been cut, thanks to Trump and Carson, to two hours. And I have to be honest, I was grateful uh, last (laughs) week. That's that's one thing I can say positive about Trump and Carson. Thank you so much for cutting that to two hours. But it was three hours, so I said cut it into three. uh, And you're going to have four, or at most five, mainly four candidates per uh, debate. Okay. Uh, So you have have a moderator acting as traffic cop instead of interjecting his or her opinions. Traffic cop, setting the topics to begin with, calling on candidates, keeping track of the time to say, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Mr. Bush has not received his his fair time. I believe he should have a chance to uh, answer this question. You know. Trying to be fair, but being a traffic cop and not arguing with the candidates. That's rule number one for a moderator. I've moderated Senate and governor debates. Thank God I've never had to do a presidential one. But it's, and it's a no-win job. Uh, I've, I've turned down recent opportunities. I just don't want to do it anymore. It was for years I did it. Uh, But the number one rule is you do not argue with candidates. You can ask a tough question, and then you let the candidates answer, and people will judge for themselves, or the press will criticize the candidate later for leaving out X, Y, and Z. It is not the moderator's job to argue with the candidate. Somebody forgot to tell them. Uh, They really did forget to tell them. So anyway, you got your group of four or five, and you say, well, how do you get those groups? Well, I came up with the idea of doing it by lottery. doing it right before the debate started. So the candidates would have no idea which candidates they'd be debating until they practically got on the stage. That would upset all the consultants and all the campaign managers and it would ruin a lot of the memorized lines, the tape recorded lines and nobody wants to hear anyway. And also you might have a real discussion. It'll get heated at times, but when you're seated at a table instead of standing at a podium, and the moderator's not trying to aggravate you and irritate you, but rather keep the flow going, we, the voters, might actually learn something. We might learn something. So, uh, of course, that had no chance of of (laughs) happening because it's not about the voters. It's about the network sponsors building drama so they can get larger audiences and charge more money for their spots. Uh, CNBC, with that awful debate, still got 14 million viewers. Now, that was down from the approximately 24 million that both Fox and CNN got, but it was the largest audience CNBC has ever had in their history. And do you know what they did? They charged $250,000 for a 30-second spot. Many times the maximum fee they had ever charged before. And that's why you had so many commercials during that two-hour uh, thing. Uh, the candidates made money for them. They made money on the debates. That's why they do it. And Fox and CNN made far more because they had longer uh, longer debates and they charged more because they knew they were going to have a larger audience. So you know, don't ever think it's about you. Don't ever, Don't ever make that mistake. We've got time for two more. One there and then this one. Go ahead. Larry, are um, Ed Klein's depiction of the uh, Obamas and the Clintons uh, at all accurate? And if so, why does it seem that character doesn't matter when it comes to uh, national elections? Well, you know, Ed Klein is a very controversial journalist author. And I have not sat down and analyzed everything that he has written. Probably some of it's true and some of it's false and some of it's in between. He's written some controversial books about about the Clintons. Um, you know, I've been pretty honest about what I what I've known and I've been honest even going back to 1992. You know, and I, we get the outlines. We may not know all the particulars, and we may may not know exactly which particulars to believe, but we get the basic outline. All right, uh, you know, I don't even have to go into it. You already know i always I always compare the two Clintons this way, and they 've got you know look uh, fought, Vince Foster wasn 't murdered i mean there 's so many weird things that these conspiracy theorists say, and they ruin the arguments that are true because they go way out there with stuff that just isn't isn 't true but i put it, I try to put it in a nice way I, I say you know the, the Clintons could not be more different as campaigners they 'll come together to an event and they 'll both wave and and smile and so on, and then bill will you know, plunge into the crowd, shake every hand, come out with a dozen phone numbers. Um, and Hillary, and this is absolutely true. I've been with her. I've seen her. She exits as soon as she can, and she goes into the green room, and she'll start reading a book in a corner with a hot cup of tea. Now, to tell you the truth, that's what most of us would do. <laughs> you know, that it's a, it's a sign more of normality, although I don't think presidents should be loners. On the whole, that was one of Nixon's problems. You don't want you want a president to love people, not too much, uh, not not taking it too far, having certain boundaries there. But you want a president to love people. But they just couldn't be more different, uh, and 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 I think that applies all the way down the line to family and the way they deal with uh, politics and issues and laws and all the rest of it. Um, they're as slippery. I wouldn't say slipperier than most of the politicians I've known, and they flip-flop about as much as most of the politicians I've known. So on some scores, they're just politicians. They're they're exactly the same as the others. Character, I think people are numb to it, in part because uh, somebody did a count of, like, 1,400 scandals since the 80s. Uh, And they're just, you know, you get to the point where Uh, You say, and I've said this myself, you know, I'd really rather not know on that, you know, particular score, particularly the personal ones. I'd just really rather not know some of it, unless it bleeds over into uh, public resources and public staff, taxpayer-paid staff being used, that kind of thing. I, I really don't want to know what public officials are doing with every hour of their day or night. Now, I will say this, if Hillary gets elected, she's going to have a revenge because the president actually gets to assign, if she wishes, Secret Service uh, officers to individual protectees. And she's going to have a report about what he's doing morning, noon, and night. He's, I'm surprised he's campaigning so hard for him. People ask me, what, what is Bill going to do in Hillary's administration? I said the ideal role for him, and listen to this carefully, is roving ambassador. All right, let me get – this is the last question. <laughs> Sir, it's all on you. This had better be a good question. <laughs> My question is so boring compared to that. Uh, what, what do you see – what are the top three reasons why the country at the state, aggregated at the state level, has become so polarized compared to past elections? Uh, I'd have to blame a lot of it on the social issues, which are terribly divisive and go kind of to your, the core of your beliefs. Uh, and we, we would as a country do better if we discussed them less. I'm not saying they should be ignored or that we don't need to come to resolution on immigration or some of these other things, but it's, it's just guaranteed to start an argument probably isn't your households. You know, you, often there's a generational difference and, uh, you know, we used to argue with our parents about this, that, and the other, but somehow they were inconsequential things about how long your hair got, things like that. Now, it's, you know, these fundamental uh, issues uh, that, are, that are just deeply controversial. So social issues, uh, second, we have now aligned politics along uh, economic and educational lines in a way that reinforces itself because economic uh, lines educational lines actually produce neighborhoods and communities and today to a greater degree than ever before as bill bishop showed in his excellent book the big sword it must be good because I don't push other people's books um, <laughs> other people's books the, the big sort it's a good book to look at we now when we have a choice of moving We move to a neighborhood that shares our values, and because it shares our values, it shares our party ID. It's the same. It's the same. So communities now are clearly identified by red and blue to a much greater degree than ever used to be the case. Uh, By the way, Donald Trump, do you know uh, the source of his strength? Half of the Republican Party is blue collar. They used to be Democrats. They're the Reagan Democrats, the blue collar, defense oriented, uh, meat and potatoes, uh, uh, FDR, New Deal Democrats, JFK Democrats. They're now Republicans. They became Republicans partly during Nixon and also during Reagan. They are the source of his strength. He is drawing wildly disproportionate support from blue-collar Republicans with, and this is not to criticize it, but they haven't had the privilege of having many years of education, and their incomes are lower. The college-educated half of the Republican Party is heavily supporting others now Carson draws from that although his main supports evangelical but the the other candidates the Bushes and the Rubios and so on they're drawing from the college educated side and of course it's all split up most of the other candidates are drawing from the college educated side But this this is a major problem and it's also it reinforces the social issue differences blue collars have a very different view of immigration and gay marriage and things like that than college-educated people do. So uh, we're, the barriers today are reinforcing themselves, and it's like we have walls around our communities. Look at your precinct results. That'll show you. And look at it over time. Do a time series to see how it has distilled or purified into one party or the other. And, you know, it's not a good thing. We're we're one country. I think the idea of having seven states determine presidential elections is destructive to the nature of our country. We need to have national elections with candidates going everywhere and learning about the entire country. End of sermon. It's been fun. Thank you for coming. And let's try to win today.